Thanks, Mike. What a difference a, a week makes, huh? Gee. What, uh, I, I figured it out. I think we need to change the clock every week, but I don't know if we can get the rest of the world to go along with us. What do you think? You're not looking like the same spark lively group that you were last week. What's the deal here? Hey, you ever notice how some things in life are easy to misread? Um, you know, it's kind of one of those things where it seems obvious, but maybe it isn't. You kind of dig into it, you check into it. I saw a cartoon this week that kind of summed it up. This little boy was sitting next to his dad, and they were sitting in church, and he said, Daddy, what does it mean when Pastor Thompson takes off his watch and puts it on the pulpit in front of him when he starts his sermons? And his dad looked at him and said, Nothing, son. Absolutely nothing. <laughs> you know, just one of those deals. There was a, a wealthy business owner who was going by his, uh, one of the departments of his, of his uh, business, and he looked in the door and he saw this man in there, and he was handling all the day's receipts, and he was piling them up into, into really neat piles, and he was doing it so efficiently and so quickly, he had never seen anybody handle money this fast. So he went in, wanted to get to know all his employees and spend some time because he liked to be involved with them. He walked in and he said, you know, son, I've, I've never seen anybody handle money like that so efficiently, so quickly, so rapidly. So where'd you get your training? He said, I got it at Yale. He goes, Yale, that's a wonderful institution, a fine institution. Oh, I highly recommend it to anybody. And as he was walking out the door, he wanted to take note of who this man was. We looked back and said, son, what was your name again? He said, Jackson. <laughs> There's this little pause. We're on radio delay here. It's all right. It'll catch up. You know, it's so funny. about 20 minutes from now, you'll be going, that was funny. But it'll be too late by then, and you won't want to laugh because it'll disturb everything else that we have going on. But um, you don't get it. Yale, Jackson. Jail, Jackson. That's all right. That's all right. You know, some, the next, the next time, oh, you're not alone. I know. That's the sad thing about all of it. It was, you really want, a week ago, you would have loved that one. And probably at 10 o'clock, you will, too. So, <sighs> well, you don't do anything to help us out. You know what I'm saying? All right. Anyway, so some things are easy to misread. Other things are not easy to misread at all. In fact, they're pretty obvious. We live in a pretty messed up world. I don't know if you've noticed that. Has anybody noticed that recently? It's pretty messed up. You don't have to misread that one at all. It is messed up. It's a tough world. It's rugged. It's brutal. It's wicked. It's violent. And all you have to do is pick up the newspapers and listen to the news, and you realize how true that really is. We live in a messed up world. And the point is, is that, you know, God's not caught off guard by any of it. And if you've got your Bibles, turn to 2 Timothy for a second, because I want you to understand something, and it'll lay out a foundation for what we're going to talk about this morning. But you need to understand that God's not surprised by the messed up world that we live in. And in fact, in 2 Timothy chapter 3, he gives us a description of the world that we live in. And he does so far in advance of the particular time in which we find ourselves living here on earth. But in 2 Timothy 3, it's fascinating, God's description of the world that we live in. 2 Timothy 3. We read this. But, in the, but realize this, that in the last days, difficult times will come. For men will be lovers of self, lovers of money, boastful, arrogant, revilers, disobedient to parents, ungrateful, unholy, unloving, irreconcilable, malicious gossips without self-control, brutal, haters of good, 
treacherous, reckless, conceited, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, holding to a form of godliness, although they have denied its power, and avoid such men as these. For among them are, are, are those who enter into households and captivate weak women weighed down with sins, led on by various impulses, always learning and never able to come to the knowledge of the truth. The first thing that we need to understand is God recognizes we live in a very difficult world. Verse 1, he says, but realize this, that in the last days, difficult times will come. Some translations have it perilous. Others have it terrible. Uh, Vine's Expository Dictionary defines difficult as being grievous, harsh, fierce, savage. It says the only other time that this particular word is used in the Bible was found in Matthew chapter 8. And it describes two men who are demon-possessed and were exceedingly, exceedingly violent. And it's interesting to me that God recognizes that we live in a difficult, savage, perilous world. That it's grievous. And he goes on and he tells us of what some of the demonstration of this difficulty or this evil would be. And he also says in verse 8 and 9, he says, but, And just as Janus and Jambres opposed Moses, so these men also opposed the truth. They're men of depraved mind, rejected as regards the faith. But they will not make further progress, for their folly will be obvious to all, as also that those two came to be. And he's saying that, you know what, also there's depravity. And anytime you see the word depravity in the Bible, it means a, a, a conspicuous absence of spiritual sensitivity. Declining to even begin to try to understand the spiritual side of life. Ignoring the reality of God and His presence in this universe. And depravity is being so far gone. And we saw it because we talked about last week the depravity of our minds. How our minds can begin to think to the point where God's not even a consideration in any of our actions or our thoughts. Who cares about God? He doesn't exist or we're not accountable to Him or whatever. And so there's an absence, an absence, a conspicuous absence from our thought life as far as, well, what would God have to say about what I do? What would he have to think about it? What would he do if I did what I'm thinking of doing? Is there any consequence for my action? Deprav, de, depra, a depraved mind says, hey, I'm just going to do what I want to do, and I don't care if there is a God, and I don't think he has any relevant, relevancy to what I do. But then in verse 13, we also see this, that we're also living in a world that's deceived. He says, and but evil men and impostors will proceed from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. You know, basically God's saying, hey, look, Chuck, you know what? We live in a difficult time. We live in a depraved society. We live in a society that's filled with deceived people. Men and women who teach things that aren't accurate according to the word of God, who would deceive others as well as them becoming deceived in their own belief about what they teach. And they, and they lead people away from God and his truth rather than toward him. So that not only are they deceiving others, but they're even deceived in what they believe that they think. And that goes back to, but they're sincere, but you can be sincerely wrong. And there are people that are sincere about what they teach, but they're sincerely wrong according to the standards that God lays out. And in that deception, they keep deceiving others as well as continuing to reinforce the own deception in their life. And so I stop and I ask this question because it's difficult for all of us to try to relate to this to some degree. But, you know, have you ever got to the point in your life where you think, what difference could I make, me, an individual, in a world that's so messed up? I mean, stop and think about that. That's a very relevant question, and I think most of us can relate to it. Have you ever got so frustrated that you said, you know what, what difference could I make? <laughs> what difference can I make? What difference can I make as a student in this university or at this high school? What difference can I make in this business that I'm in? 
When I'm surrounded by people who believe what they believe and they're convinced that what they believe is right and yet it's so wrong according to what I believe that the Bible teaches. What difference can I make? What difference can I make? And you get so frustrated sometimes, you get to the point where it's like, you know what, I can't beat the system, so I'm not even going to try anymore. And I'm just going to kind of like go with the flow outwardly. Oh, but God knows in my heart I'm not going with the flow inwardly. See, because I can't really make a difference. What difference can one person make? I was talking to a friend of ours whose son's in college and he's really struggling with something and maybe you can relate to it. He can't get excited about life. A few months ago, one of his best friends was killed in an automobile accident. So he sits at school and he wonders, what's the sense of all this? I'm going to, you know, bust my rump here. I'm going to study hard. I'm going to go to school. I'm going to get a degree if I can finish. And then I'm going to go to work. And then I'm going to work. And I live in a crummy world. And you know what? And then what's going to happen? You know, I look at the adults in my life, and you know what? And all they do is moan and groan about going to work and making a living, uh, you know, this and that. And it's like I look at the world around me, and I think, that's the world that I'm going into. And it doesn't look like one that excites me a whole bunch. So I'd just rather not do anything. Because there's no sense in, in, in doing all these things so that I might die tomorrow, like his friend did. I mean, we, I can relate to that. I don't know if you can, but I can. I hope you can, because we're going to talk about how to deal with it. But think about it. If we are so, as Christians, reflecting this defeated attitude as older people to our young people, I wouldn't be in any big hurry to enter our world. And then you get frustrated with them. What's wrong with them? They're not motivated. They don't have any incentive to do anything. Don't they see the importance of education? Don't they see the importance of, of being disciplined in their job? Don't they see the importance of being involved with the lives of other people? Don't they see any of this? Well, probably not if they're looking at you. See, the, you know, I don't want to step on any toes here because I usually don't do that. <laughs> but we need to ask ourselves some questions because really what it boils down to is that, hey, you know what? Do we have any influence at all? As God's people, do we have any influence at all in this difficult, depraved, and deceived world that we live in? If you think we don't, then I can understand how you feel. But if you realize we do, it changes how we look at life changes everything. Several years ago, we were traveling throughout uh, Switzerland and some of the surrounding countrysides, and uh, I was reminded of a story that lays a foundation for what I want to talk about this morning, because it, it is uh, not just some tale, but it has some vivid realities to what we're going to discuss. Some of you may have heard the story. The story is that it's about a, an old gentleman who was a keeper of the springs, and he lived up above an Austrian village, and he had been hired to, basically to do one thing. And if you've ever been to Switzerland or Austria or surrounding countrysides, he lived on the eastern slope of the Alps, and he lived up in this particular area. And his job was to just basically keep the springs clear that fed into the stream that fed the city. And so he lived up there as a recluse by himself, and all that he did was he kept the stuff out of the springs. He cleaned out all the leaves. He cleaned out all the branches. He cleared out any debris that was there. And so the springs would go down into the city, and there's this main stream that went right through the middle of the city. And through the middle of the city, it fed a lake, and there was a lake, and it had swans, and it had ducks, and it was beautiful, and the flowers, and the tourists loved it. It was a, a, just a beautiful area. 
And, the, and if you've ever been there, they got all those little mills that go around, and, and, the, and, the, and the stream fed the mills, and the mills were used to conduct business, and uh, things were going great. That's what he did. Several years passed, and a town council meeting set up one night, and they all got together, and they were going over the budget. And they were going down through it line item by line item, and they got to this particular point, and somebody said, who's this, who's this old man? Has anybody ever met him? They went around the room. No one's ever met him. I mean, well, we just mail his check to him. Has anybody ever met him? No. Does anybody even know what he looks like? I don't. Do you? I don't. Well, that's amazing. We keep sending this guy a check, and no one's ever met him. For all we know, he's not even doing anything. So they took a vote. And guess what they voted? Cut off his salary. They let him go. Several weeks went by. A couple months went by. It was the middle of summer. Nothing happened. Then fall came around. Fall comes around. The leaves are all turning colors. It's a beautiful area. The leaves start to fall into the springs that feed the stream, that feeds the city. The sticks and the branches and the leaves and the silt begin to clog up the streams that feed the stream that feeds the city. And within a short period of time, the water's yellow, it's slimy, it's dirty, there's mosquitoes, there's disease, there's contamination. The tourists come and leave because of the ugly plight that they find themselves. Businesses are affected by all of it. And they sit down, they have this emergency council meeting. They said, what did we do? The only thing we did was we eliminated the old guy that no one saw that used to keep the streams clean, but obviously he must have been doing something. So they unanimously decide, we better rehire him. So they find him, he does his job within a matter of months. The beauty of the city is restored. The keeper of the springs, the obscure man that nobody sees. And it's not just a vivid tale, because as I think about it, how it illustrates who we are as Christians in the world that we live in. See, the world we live in, this difficult, depraved, and deceived world, believes that they could do a lot better without us. You ever feel that way? They believe that. But Jesus tells us exactly the opposite. See, the old man, the keeper of the spring, that city couldn't live without him. But it was only until he was gone that they realized how important he really was. Now, the keeper of the spring could have had an attitude. He said, I'm not going back to work for you. You don't appreciate me. I'm not doing anything for you. You don't appreciate me. But he did. He went back to doing the job that he was meant to do. See, the Keeper of Spring is a great story to help me as a Christian that lives in a difficult, depraved, deceived world to begin to realize, you know what? I can make a difference. Not because I think highly of myself, but because I believe what Jesus says. I can, as a student, make a difference in a university that says they don't want to hear what I have to say. I can, as a business person, make a difference in an industry that says, would rather not hear what you have to say. I can, as an, a person in a neighborhood, that these crazy Christian people live on our street. I can make a difference if I believe what Jesus says. And if you got your Bibles, I'm going to show you. Because, see, some things are so obvious that it's so obvious we don't even see it. And I don't want to just rehash the obvious, but we're going to. Because I think a lot of us have fallen into the mode of, you know what, I'm tired of fighting this fight. I'm not making any difference, and I'd rather not be here anymore. But see, 
God has other plans. Matthew chapter 5. Open up their Bible and, and look at it with me because this is some great stuff. I, it, it's just, it's fascinating when you sit down and you study it, you look at it and go, man, you know what? This is it. This is the answer to the kid that's struggling at school. This is the answer to friends that are struggling just with what they're going through. This is the answer to all of us who are at the point where we don't want to keep going on. This is it right here. Matthew chapter 5. And there's only a couple of verses. Look, he says in verse 13. He says, you are the salt of the earth. But if the salt has become tasteless, how will we be made salty again? It's good for nothing anymore, except to be thrown out and trampled underfoot by men. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. Nor do men light a lamp and put it under the peck measure, but on the lampstand, and it gives light to all who are in the house. Let your light shine before men in such a way that they may see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. You know what I love about this? This is, this, is, this is great because what Jesus is saying is this, that you and I are indispensable influences for good. We are indispensable influences for good. The world may try to convince us that it would be better off without us, but then again, I don't believe anything that the world says, but I certainly believe what the Word says. I believe what Jesus says. I believe that this world would be a war far worse place without me than with me. I believe that. Now you say, man, he is really an arrogant guy. But I mean that sincerely, not because of anything special about me, but because Jesus says it. Chuck, you are indispensable. In your family, in your business, in your neighborhood, in your community, in what you do, you are an indispensable, you are an indispensable influence for good. And I believe it only because I know where we're heading with all this, but I wasn't quite sure about it when I first set out to start to study it. I said, Lord, you're going to have to convince me. And he does, very, very distinctly. That's what he says. The first thing that he says and, and we'll take a look at these metaphors. We'll take a look at them one at a time. He says, you know what? You're the salt of the earth. You're the salt of the earth. He goes through it, and I like that. You are the salt of the earth. Think about this. How many of you, how many of you ever smelled old rotten meat? Huh? Raise your hand. How, how, many, how many of it was in, in one of those Tupperware surprises? Yeah? Huh? Yeah, I see that balcony's going. That's why they're sitting up there. They opened one of those Tupperware surprises this morning. But you ever do that? You open one of those Tupperware surprises, and it's just like, whoa, man. Or you walk behind a restaurant, you know, near a dumpster. Sometimes what we do, we have to go, like, up on the roof of buildings. You have to go find the roof ladder, ladder access and stuff, and you've got to go past dumpsters and stuff in restaurants. And it's like, it's like on a hot day. It's like cooking in those things. Like dumpsters are metal. It's like a frying pan. They put stuff in there and they cook all day until the trash guys come, right? And it's like gross. And, and, and I mean, and have you ever come back from a vacation and discover that you thought you cleaned out the refrigerator real good before you left, but to find something in one of those drawers and then you open it up and it's kind of got that slimy stuff on it? 
And, and then it's like you're starving and you're wondering, well, is this still good? <laughs> yeah. You know? It's like, have you ever been there? I mean, one word comes to mind in all those experiences. Nasty. It is gross. Check this out. Think of the earth that we live in. Think of this world as old rotten meat or fish. This world we live in is nasty. It's one big Tupperware surprise. That's <laughs> what it is. The world we live in is one big Tupperware surprise. And so when you get up in the morning, you realize you're walking into one big Tupperware surprise. And you shouldn't be caught off guard by it. Because the world is difficult, depraved, and deceived. The world is nasty, it's gross. That's the way that it is. But you know what's interesting? The world's perishing. It's slowly rotting every day. And it's getting worse, not better. And we are the salt of the earth. Listen to this. One commentator says, The disciples are called, called to be a moral disinfectant in a world where moral standards are low, constantly changing, or non-existent. Think about this. You are the salt of the earth. You are, and 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 you're old and a little more salty than the rest of us. <laughs> and you are, and I am. And, and, and follow this for a second, because he's not saying you should be. He's saying you are. He's not saying give it a thought, give it a try. He's saying you are the salt of the earth. Now let's have some fun. Let's do a little audience participation. All right? I always like this part, and so do you. What do you use salt for? Number one. Here we go. Thank you very much. Preserving. We use salt to preserve. Now wait a minute, wait a minute. Add spice. Add spice. Oh, I like this. Preserving, add spice. Let's take preserving first because you're all going to get to participate because you don't leave until you answer one question. <laughs> I've, I've come up with a whole new philosophy about how to do this. Okay, preserving. Salt is used as a preservation. Salt will not keep the meat from ultimately rotting out, but it will preserve it. Before refrigeration, that's all they used. They would take meat and they would rub salt on it. And it was used to preserve, to, to, to hinder at best, the rotting process. Follow this for a second. You are, <clears throat> you are preservation. You are used by God to slow down the rotting procedure. You're here to hinder rottenness. I like that. Think about that. You and I are to be used by God to preserve this world from getting as rotten as it could possibly be. Okay? What else do you solve for? In the absence of a wife, it makes your blood pressure go up. <laughs> <laughs> now, can anybody stop for a moment to think about why the man wouldn't have a wife? Uh, now... <laughs> Now, that was good, though. I like that. But I can't express that I like that because it wouldn't be politically correct in my household to like that. 
<clears throat> Okie dokie. Um, what else does salt do? Oh, we got a doctor here. Dr. Mort, it creates digestive juice for your stomach. I understood what you said, sir. <laughs> Man, well, so it does things that some of us don't even know about, is what it does. Good. Salt makes you thirsty. I can relate to that. Salt makes you thirsty. Think about this. It creates thirst. It should make people around us thirst for more. What makes you tick? What are you all about? I don't understand how you think. Can you explain to me what in the world you're thinking? It should create a thirst in people around us. It preserves the world from getting more rotten. It creates a thirst about who we are and what we're all about. It uh, is also a healing agent, if you think about it. You ever have one of those little sores in your mouth and you take a little gargle of salt water or whatever? They used to throw salt water on the backs of people that they'd whip to heal the wounds. It would sting at first, but ultimately it would heal. Salt is a healing agent. It's a preservative. Salt uh, creates thirst. How many of you grew up uh, in a cold climate city or state or whatever? Do you remember salt, the old salt trucks? I mean, what do they do? They, they melt ice. They melt snow. You think about this. Salt can melt the coldest, frozen heart of a person that you meet. Yeah, we can melt fenders. But... Moving right along, segue, and that was a real clean one too, by the way. You are the salt of the earth, but, here's a disclaimer, but, see what it says? But you know what? But if the salt loses its saltiness, some says if it loses its flavor, if it loses its tang, if it loses its zest, how can it be made salty again? Check this out. Salt, if it loses its zestiness, can't be made salty again. And you know what Jesus says? It's good for nothing. It's good for nothing. Let me just kind of tell it the way it is. This danger, this warning, you can't miss. Because what Jesus says about every one of us who are God's people, he says this, you know what? There is a danger in us losing our effectiveness and losing our contribution to society. When we get to the point where we say, what good is there anymore? What's the sense of this? I can't make a difference. Then as Christians, you know what we're good for here on earth? Nothing. Nothing. I know many Christian friends who sit around feeling like they're good for nothing. They're defeated, they're depressed, they're discouraged. And they say, you know what? I don't think I make a difference. And I just cheer them up and say, don't think you don't make a difference. Know it. Because you don't make a difference. You're good for nothing. And that's not me saying it. Jesus said it. If the salt loses its flavor, it's good for nothing. 
And you know what happens as a result of being good for nothing for Jesus? We're trampled underfoot by men. We're run roughshod, man. People just run right over us. If we are not distinctive and we don't stand for something, we will fall for anything. And when we're falling and we're on the ground, we will be trampled underfoot by everybody that comes along because we've lost our distinctiveness, we've lost our zest, we've lost our zeal, we've lost our flavor, and there's nothing good in us anymore as Christians. God might as well just take us home. That's what he says. So let's just apply some things. Application time. Some things to consider. Okay, we'll go back to audience participation time. Here we go. Number one. Check this out. Salt is shaken and sprinkled, not poured. You got that? Salt is shaken and sprinkled, it's not poured. When I lived back in Pennsylvania, I remember the salt trucks coming around. And I remember the maintenance yards that they had. And they had big old, just big old piles of salt and gravel and cinder and all the rest of it. But they had big old piles of salt. And they were in the maintenance yard of these particular operations. And you know what? When it snowed and when it was icy and when it was cold and when the streets froze and when there was snow on the street, you know what? That big old pile of salt in that maintenance yard did absolutely no good for the snow and the ice that was on our street. None. But when they loaded that salt truck up and we could hear it at night because I'd lay in bed and you hear the big tires coming you could hear the change on the tires and you could hear it. And you could, and you could hear it just beating every car. They, they would take the thing and it would just spray it out the back. It would go... And you'd hear it hit your car. And it was sprinkled all over the place. And that's what they did with it. Because a big pile of it was useless. It had to be spread out. You ever go out and eat and your kids do that little trick where they unscrew the sugar or the salt or something? You ever do that? I Ryan did that one year. Once. Once. He's, he's done a lot of things once. And, and then it was like, okay, well, there's a, there's a lesson here. I'm sure I'll use it as an illustration, but until then, I think I got an idea for you. But, but it was like, and you go and you dump it, and you go, and it just gets dumped right in one spot. Not real good that way. Not real good. But if you spread it out, it's effective. It works. I like this. You know why? Because here's what I think. Spread out. We don't need to be just one big lump sum of Christians who come to a church or a Bible study or a shepherd group or whatever. We get together and we're just big one lump, big old pile of salt. That's all we are. And that's all right as long as we realize that our effectiveness is when we're dispersed. You know, God's known that from the beginning. From Babel, we said, hey, you're not hanging out together. I'm going to have to spread you out. Acts 1.8 says you're going to be witnesses here in Judea and Samaria and the outermost parts of the earth. Why? Because if it was up to you, you'd all hang out together and huddle together. Why? Because we live in a difficult, depraved, and deceived world. And if it was up to us as Christians, we'd work together, we'd play together, we'd spend all our time together because the world's messed up. We don't want any part of it. And he says, but you know what, though? But that's what salt's all about. It's supposed to be out there. It needs to be dispersed. I like one guy one time, he said, oh, you know what? I got no other Christians where I work. Would you pray for me? I'm like, no, I'm not going to pray for you. I'm going to pray for the people you work with. <laughs> because if you're the only Christian there, chances are they're never going to see a victorious Christian life, being obedient to Christ, sharing the gospel with people around you, taking a stand on issues that are, that are opposed to ethics and morality according to Scripture, they're not going to see any of it because you're going to sit around going, I'm the only Christian in my business. Oh, please, give me a break. But how many of you have said that? 
I felt that. And then you got to get back to the Word and realize, you know what? That's great. Do you realize that God has entrusted that whole company of people to you? What a wonderful opportunity. I got guys on sports teams. We only got a couple of us on the team. Oh, you big sissy. I don't tell them that. <laughs> I'm not stupid. I just think it. You know? And it's like, well, you know, big sissy. Uh, you know, and, and you don't do that. But think about it. Think about it. Wouldn't that be the greatest thing? If God would trust you enough to be used by him to reach your whole company, to reach your whole university, I'm the only Christian in our university. Wow, this is a great opportunity. I'm the only Christian in my high school. Wow, God trusts me. I'm the only Christian in my business. I'm the only Christian in my family. What an opportunity. Now, nah, that's not how we think, though, is it? Oh, you're only Christian, would you pray for me? Oh, shut up. You know, no, I won't pray for you. I'll pray God takes you home if you don't start doing what you're supposed to be doing here. And they put someone else there. What? You're not doing anyone any good. Snibbly little whiny thing, you. That's a picture of a Christian to the world that sees you. There's a Christian. Who wants to be like that? That was my idea of a Christian. I'd see anybody walking around being obedient, taking a stand, saying, hey, I'm not caving into peer pressure because I know who I believe in and I know what I believe and this is where I stand. You don't like it too bad. That's not the Christians I met when I was first checking it out. I saw the snibbly ones. Like, gee whiz, that looks attractive to me. <laughs> Man. You know what it is? Here it is. It's like we're in a huddle. We're in a huddle. Today, we're in a huddle. We're in a huddle. And we get together in a huddle, and here's what we talk about in the huddle. Need a new strategy. Need to run this play. Need to do this thing. Need to come up with a new idea. We need to pray for each other because we're out there in a very difficult, depraved, deceived world. We need to pray for each other, and we need to encourage each other. We need to do all those things together. And then you know what? And then when we're done with all these things, guess what happens? We go, ready, break. And then we go out and we play. Can you imagine a football team that would come back to the huddle and say, I'm not going back out there. I am not going back out there. Do you see how big that guy is? He hit me in the nose two times in a row. I am not going out there. Then what happened? Hey, the only thing God's probably is he doesn't cut you. He just puts you on the sideline and then you feel good for nothing. Right? Hey, we're in a huddle. We're learning. We're growing. We understand we're in a tough situation. But you know what? Think about this. Would it change the way that you fought and played the game if you knew you were going to win the Super Bowl even though you lost this particular battle? All right, so, hey, step up, lick, lick your wounds, move on. You lost this particular game. You lost this battle today. You lost this situation at work. You lost this with your relative or whatever today. So what? But you win the Super Bowl. You're not defeated. We're not, we're not broken, busted, defeated. We're victorious. We're going to win. So why not go and do something about it? Salt is shaken and sprinkled. It's dispersed to be effective. It needs to go out and do something. Then let's all come back together and we can lick our wounds and we can be encouraged. We can pray for each other and we can strategize. And we can go back out. And we can run the next play. We can fight, fight, win, win, fight, fight, fight. <laughs> all right, all right. Listen, man, you know, we need to get excited about something, you know, but also salt adds flavor. Like this gentleman said, it adds some zest. 
It adds some zest to life. Salt adds zest to life. I like what Dr. J. Vernon McGee once said. He said, you know what? Christians are the salt and pepper of the world. He goes, but for many of us, we've, the salt has lost its flavor and the pepper, it's pep. And I agree with them. All sitting around, snibbling, whining, feeling sorry for ourselves, as if we're going to lose. We're not going to lose. Stop whining. Stop feeling sorry for yourself. If you're sitting around whining, feeling sorry for yourself, then you've lost your pep. Then you are defeated. Then you are trampled underfoot. Then you do feel like a victim in this world. So what? We need to be salt. Salt is also unlike any other seasoning. There's nothing like salt. Nothing. You can try all those fancy little things and all that big old spice rack and stuff. And you can do all that. But man, let me tell you something. There's nothing like salt and pepper. If the pep has a little pep and the salt has some flavoring, has some zest, there's nothing like it. And you know what? It's like it's, salt adds flavor, but, but it's obscure. No one ever sat down and said, my, that was good salt. <laughs> that was some good salt we had. You know, if anybody does, you probably used a little bit too much of it, huh? Yeah, my, can I get the recipe for your salt? No one ever says that. That was a good meal. That was excellent. Just, oh, it was just right. Just add a little zip and zest to flavor. We, as Christians, need to add a little zest and zip to life. Add a little zest to your office, to your business. Add a little zest to the high school or the college you go to. Add a little zest to the community. Add a little spice. Just don't go with the flow. Stand up for what you believe and what you know is true and be counted on and heard. Add a little zip and zest to those board meetings at school. Add a little flavor and spice to the board meetings at your office. Add a little zip and flavor, a little different direction, something different to think about. Really hurt people with the how you think and what you share. And add a little excitement to those meetings. Why do I think the same? They're so boring. But we don't think the same. You know what? It's about time some of us, like, just get out of the salt shaker and get dispersed. Because you know why? Because you are the salt of the earth. You are. And so am I. I'm the salt of the earth. I'm going to be used by God to preserve, to heal, to create thirst. I'm going to be used by God to add zip and zest and flavor to life. In a world that just like the world in Switzerland and Austria that thought they could live without the keeper of the spring. The world cannot survive without us. It changes the whole, my whole attitude of how I look at life. You know what? And if that's not enough, here's some more. It's the two simple little things. You're salt and you're light. Look at this. You're the light of the world. You're a city. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. Neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on its stand and it gives light to everyone in the house. And he says in the same way, using that as a parallel, saying in the same way, let your light shine before men that they may see your good deeds and praise your Father who is in heaven. Does anybody here think it's significant that Jesus says about us the same thing he said about himself? In John 8, 12, he said this, I am the light of the world. He who follows me shall not walk in darkness, but shall have the light of life. Does anybody for a moment understand the significance when Jesus says to you the same thing that he says about himself? I am the light of the world, Jesus said. You know what he said? Chuck, so are you. 
And so are you, and so are you, and 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 you. You're the light of the world. A city that's set on a hill can't be hidden. What's the purpose of light? To dispel darkness? To expose evil? That's the purpose of light. You know, it's interesting. Wouldn't it be great if a non-Christian could come up to you one day? And this is kind of my sick mind thinking here again. But wouldn't it be great if a non-Christian came up to you and said, Twinkle, twinkle, little star, how I wonder what you are? Wouldn't it be great? I don't know if they'd say it like that. But I'd like to have somebody say it. What are you? What are you all about? What makes you tick? How do you think? Help me understand. I don't understand. How I wonder what you are. You're the light of the world. You're the salt of the earth. It should create that type of wonderment. And let me tell you something. It's like an old Twilight Zone movie I saw once. It was really cool. It's an old Twilight Zone movie. This lady was blind. And uh, she manipulated this guy into donating her eyes so that she could see. She'd never been able to see. She was a mega, mega rich woman. And this guy was in trouble and he needed money. And so at the last minute, he sells his eyes to this woman. Okay? They have the operation. But the operation is you can only, she'll only be able to see for 12 hours. Even paying all this money and even this guy sacrificing his sight, all she's going to benefit from this is 12 hours of sight. So they have the operation, and after the operation's over, they take the bandages off her eyes. And right when she take, they take the bandages off her eyes, there's a power failure in New York City. She can't see anything. It's pitch black. It's dark. And she sat there, and she bounced off stuff, and she screamed and yelled and cursed all night that she couldn't see and then just as morning came and her 12 hours were up, she could see the sun starting to rise. And she was attracted to the light. And she went for the light. This had nothing to do with where I'm going. But she fell out the window and got killed. But anyway. But she goes for the light, right? And what's the whole point? The point is that when someone sees light, Genuine light and the brilliance of light, you can't be content living in the dark. You can't. You cannot be content living in darkness. When someone sees genuine light, they want it. They should want what we have. And what we have has been given to us, it's not something that we've earned. What we have is a result of just trusting in Jesus Christ, believing that he died for our sins, that we've been born again, the Bible says. That's all that we have. And because that's all, that's enough. We have nothing else to offer but that we're salt and that we're light. Why? Because Jesus said so. Why? Because the Spirit of God indwells us as God's people. Why? Because that's God's idea, that's his plan. And the reason for it is so that we will make a difference in this world. See, the purpose of light is to make a difference. The purpose of light, if you want to apply a couple of things like salt, the purpose of light, and it's interesting because there's a time to speak, but there's also a time to be quiet. There's a time to allow our life to shout much, much louder than our words. There's a time where we live it, and that's what they see, and that's what they're attracted to, and then we can share it. 
What confuses people are, are those of us who share what we believe and they can't see it demonstrated in how we live. See, what light should do and what we should do is we should live our life to please God, to glorify Him in how we live, to be obedient to Him, to believe in His Word, to walk in obedience so that when we do so and we don't have a conformity of mind like the world does but we're transformed by a renewed mind, by the obedience of the Word of God, when people see that, they should be attracted to it and say, why are you doing what you do? I'm so tired of people saying how other people should live and what they should believe when they don't do it themselves. As a Christian, if you're not going to live it, don't even let anybody know you're a Christian because I don't want them confusing your Christianity with mine and the Christianity of the Bible. Don't let anybody know who you are. Take your bumper sticker off and the little thing on your window and, and, and whatever it is that identifies you as being part of us. Because you're confusing people. But you live it. And they ask you, then you lip it. Then you tell them, because light is silent. See, light is like, we, God, people, is like a lighthouse. A lighthouse on a shoreline that, that warns people of the treachery that's ahead of the coral reefs and the direction that they need to go. Light, we are light, the Bible says. And as Christians, we should warn this world of the dangers that are ahead if they continue to go the direction that they're going in complete rebellion and disobedience before the Word of God. We need to be a lighthouse that guides people to right behavior and into a relationship, a living, vital relationship with the God that created them in Jesus Christ. That's what we need to be because we live in a difficult, depraved, and deceived world. We live in dangerous times, and there's a whole world of people out there who are on a collision course through all of eternity in a place called hell because we as the light are not doing what we're supposed to do. Light is silent. It gives direction. It gives hope. <laughs> light leads people to Jesus Christ. The second thing is it gives the direction that I told you and it also attracts attention. Light attracts attention. There's no question about it. Light attracts attention. A, a beautiful sunrise attracts attention. A beautiful sunset attracts attention. People go all over the world to take pictures of sunsets in, in beautiful, exotic places because of the beauty of it all. Light is attractive. Lightning and, and, and that, that crashes across the sky with a dark storm background attracts attention. And maybe that's what we are. Maybe we live in a dark, dirty, crummy world, and there's no maybes about it. We do. And our whole purpose is to be that lightning bolt that shines for just a moment against the backdraft and backdrop of all of eternity that's blackness and darkness. That's who we are. That's what we're all about. Yet we sit around and we're defeated and there's no purpose and what difference can I make? None if you have that attitude. None at all. What good am I? You're not good for anything. Let me ask you some tough questions. We'll close on this. Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones, he says this. As we produce and reveal it, speaking of light, in our daily lives, we must remember that the Christian does not call attention, attention to himself. Self has been forgotten in this, in this poverty of spirit and the meekness of all other things. In other, other words, we are to do everything for God's sake and for His glory. Self is to be absent and must be utterly crushed in all of its subtlety for His sake and for His glory. It follows from this that we are to do these things in such a way as to lead other men to glorify God, to glorify Him and give themselves to Him. He says, let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works 
Yes, and so see them that they will themselves glorify your Father. You are to do so in order that these other people may glorify Him also. The purpose of our being light is not to make us look better in the backdrop of a dark world. The purpose of our being light is to do good works so that men see it. So what? So that they can glorify the same God that we glorify in how we live our life. Ladies and gentlemen, I don't know how to ask this any other way. But are you the salt of the earth? Are you the light of the world? Because if so, you're preserving, you're healing, you have an influence. And we're just like the keeper of the spring. And don't you let anybody in this world tell you differently. You and I am like the keeper of the spring. And when we stop doing what God has called us to do, there will be decay and disease and darkness like this world has never seen. God, help us to grab just a little bit of the vision that he gives us in these particular verses because we are influential and we can make a difference. Let's pray. Father, thanks for this opportunity to uh, look into your word to see what you have to say about who we are. God, so often we feel inadequate, we feel unworthy, we feel like we're wasting our time, that we don't make a difference. And that's exactly what it is. We're feeling sorry for ourselves. God, we need to take our eyes off ourselves and put them on you. We need to understand who you are, what you call us to be, what you empower us to be. We need to understand what you say we are, that we are the salt of the earth, that we are a light in the world, that we're to attract attention, not just to ourselves by how we live, but so that ultimately we can defer all of the glory to you. God, help us to be people that as people watch the way we live, they're they're at a point where they have to ask, who are you? What are you all about? Can you tell me, please? God, may we live it first. And as we generate those questions, may we begin to share that we are nothing outside of the love and grace and the mercy and the forgiveness of God in Jesus Christ. And we just thank you and praise you in his name. Amen.